All right. Well, I am uh, starting a, I'm, I'm preaching the next four weeks, so I will start uh, just a mini-series on uh, the book of Exodus. I preached through Exodus this past spring in RUF, and I don't know how far we'll get, um, but in the next four weeks, maybe we'll just get a good feel for how Exodus starts and what it's about. Um, uh, the other thing is we just got back from three weeks of travel, and Heather and Jonathan went to load up in the car this morning, and evidently we left a dome light on or something, so the car wouldn't start. Um, they wanted to be here, but they couldn't, so we're glad to be back and uh, with you. And um, I guess the way I'll start the sermon is with a story about, I had a friend uh, that I grew up with, went to high school with, played baseball with, football with, and one of the other things that, that uh, we did regularly, especially coming up in the fall, was we would uh, go dove hunting. He, his family had a, a farm just to the southeast of Dallas to where we could drive r- really easily um, to get there. And so we'd go just for a Saturday. We'd go down for a Saturday morning and, and go dove hunting. Well, there was this one, uh, one particular hunt that we were out. And it was a uh, – it had been – I don't know what you call it – mined for gravel. <laughs> it was full of gravel pits. And it had been a, a particularly long and hot summer. And we were out and, and we were going across this one part of the, the, the land, the property. And I looked out and it looked like dried a dried up pond, a dried up piece of uh, area where, that it had water on it. And you know how out here where the clay gets dark and cracks and it was just a a big open area of of that dark clay and it was all broken well I start out across it because I want to get to the other side and as I walk out across it I realize that all that's happened is the top layer of the mud has dried and cracked but underneath it's it's still very wet and I begin to sink in up to my waist and this is just dark black clay mud and the more I fight to try to get out of it as you you can imagine the more I actually sink in well my friend not wanting me to I don't know be stuck I I don't think I would have uh, gone any further not wanting me to be stuck he offers help but the help he offers is the um the hot end of his shotgun (laughs) the end you don't want pointed at you (laughs) And I, being stuck in the mud, think, and I grab it. Um, it didn't go off, you know. <laughs> I'm okay. But it's one of those moments where you you realize that after I after I after I'd done it, I realized how stupid that was on his part and on my part. It was it was not only foolish for him to offer, but it was certainly foolish for him for me to grab it. And it wouldn't have been any better to turn it around the other way. Um, it still would have been equally as dangerous. It would have just been him that would have been in danger. So I, I look back on that, and I hope my parents don't listen to this because all those things they feared were happening when I went out hunting with my buddies. Some of them are true. Um, not all of them, but some things actually were very uh, very dangerous. And, and I, I tell that story because I think that Exodus is... Uh, well, I think our encounter with the stories of the Bible are often like that. They're, they're often we understand that we encounter the Bible and we're stuck. 
we're in some particular sin, some particular uh, personal crisis, we're in some rut spiritually, we're in some rut relationally, we're in some rut in our vocation, and we don't know what to do about it. We're confused, or we look around and we see injustice around us. There's circumstances beyond our control, and we feel like we're sinking, or maybe this is you, maybe you feel like you, you look out and the culture's sinking around you. And um, maybe you're like me uh, on one hand and you, you see it sinking and so you think, oh, well, I've just got to fight harder. But what you realize is that the more you fight, the more you struggle, the more you sink into the mire, the more that that heavy weight of, of whatever that uh, darkness is, that oppression is, it seems to stick and pull and grab you even more. I think another thing that that story helps us to see is that oftentimes somebody offers their help, will take it. Not, not ever recognizing that maybe the thing that they're offering us as help is even more dangerous than the situation we're in. And I'm talking about particularly within the church. That oftentimes we see people struggling in those ways or somebody sees us struggling in those ways and they offer us help and the help that they offer us really is loaded. It really could be more dangerous than the very situation in which we find ourselves. And I think our passage today begins to help us to see how we deal with the muck, the morass, the pit, the miry clay that we find ourselves sinking into, the confusion, whatever it is, the rut, that we want to see that the scriptures lead us through those things and certainly help us in the midst of them. But it's important for us to see how, how, what we're reaching for, what we're looking to move toward, and, and what's wrong with where we are. So I want us to look at Exodus 1 for that. Exodus is a, a book that the whole title that we've given it is about escape. That's what it means to get out. The book of Exodus is about escape. It's about escape from a dark oppression, a heavy-handed oppression. So we want to look at it through the lens of that question. How does Exodus see what it looks like to get out? Where is our escape? So turn, if you will, either in your bulletin over to page 10 or in your Bible. It's at Exodus chapter 1. Starting in verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, all the descendants of Jacob, who were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. 
Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Sifra and the other Pua, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to the Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. The word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, you are actually active right now through your word, by your spirit, to lift us up out of the miry clay, to set our feet upon a rock, to uh, send us out into this world and into our lives as ambassadors of your great gospel and your great work of grace. May you do that. May you continue to do that this morning. All uh, to your glory and for the good of your people. Amen. All right, so the question is, how does Exodus see what it looks like for us to escape? And what I want us first to see is um, that, that the book of Exodus is about oppression. It is about the darkness uh, that Israel finds itself in. It, Exodus opens having, with Israel having been in Egypt for almost 400 years. And at the point where it picks up for us, uh, they've lived uh, relatively freely. We assume they live under the, the good graces of the Pharaoh because of the work of Joseph. And that's why the story starts reminding us about Joseph and his place in the land. Uh, because he had gained for Israel respect and a place. But a new Pharaoh arises and um, first thing I guess I, I want you to see about the 400 years is that the 400 years in, in Egypt is still not the promised land. So even though it was a time of, of uh, relative ease in terms of their relationship with Egypt, um, Israel's still not living in the promise that God had made in Genesis 12 to Abraham. Genesis 12, 15, 17, throughout all of Genesis, what Genesis is dealing with in terms of uh, come, uh, Abram, and go, go to the place that I will show you. Egypt's not it. They're outside the promised land. So even there, even in the, the midst of what we might call um, a good time in Egypt, it's still, there's darkness. They're still living outside the kingdom. They're still not in the place of promise. But it gets worse um, as we see later on in the narrative. The other thing I want you to see about the, this text that, that every commentator points out 
And um, I, I think it is important to see is that for the first two chapters of Exodus, God is silent. As all of this unfolds, we, we read a little bit in our narrative of how God blesses. So we get a little bit of picture from the narrator of what uh, God's p- uh, view is toward the midwives. But he doesn't speak in any way until chapter 3. What's so profound about that is that from, from uh, there on out, he speaks almost in every chapter. That, that, that God, after chapter 3, becomes very, very active But what we want to see here is that 400 years in Egypt and a silent God, God who is watching this unfold and hasn't said anything just yet. The next thing that the text points out is that Joseph is forgotten. Verse 6, then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. Um, We're told that Joseph died and then in verse 8 we're told that the new king over Egypt does not know Joseph. And the importance of that is, is, um, as I've already mentioned, Joseph had gained a place for Israel in Egypt. He had gained some uh, credibility for them. But that's lost. That's gone. Joseph is forgotten. And that leads Pharaoh down this path of concern for his own glory and power, his own position, his own status, his own fame and his own kingdom. And in order to maintain whatever his sense of glory is, whatever his sense of power is in the kingdom, he he sees Israel as as an enemy to that. And so he oppresses and enslaves them. First, he seeks to kill, have the midwives kill the the firstborn or the, the sons of the Israelites. And then he gives this general decree to anyone who sees a son born to Israel to throw them into the Nile. He is, if you will, in the book of Exodus, one of the things that uh, begins to take shape here is this picture of Pharaoh as the anti-God. Uh, Pharaoh as this other God, this God of Egypt, this God of this age, if you will, this God of darkness that is, is actually now posturing himself as the authority over life and the life of the Israelites. And he's seeking to snuff out their place in this world. Part of the reason you might ask, well, why if he wants to destroy them, does he kill the boys and not the girls? One, boys tended to grow up in into soldiers in that day. Um, So the death of the boy would have been a way of keeping Israel from uh, being able to amass an army. And the other is uh, women would have been, in that culture, would have been easily, and I say that um, in quotes, easily integrated into, into Egyptian life. They would have just been taken as Egyptian wives, and their their place as Israelites would have been wiped out through that. He is seeking to destroy Israel. He is, in the book of Exodus, an anti-God. And the book of Exodus is set up as a sort of God war, if you will. Uh, One of the other uh, just pictures of that in our story is the last verse, this casting of the child into the Nile. The Nile was uh, was one of the gods of Egypt. There was a god of the Nile, and this would have been uh, seen as the Nile, and it's the glory of of Egypt um, consuming the Israelite people, destroying them. Pharaoh has risen up and brought hard labor 
on the people. They are stuck. They're caught. They are now enslaved in a place where once we guessed they were relatively free, um, now they are, are made to be uh, uh, work under the most bitter of conditions. And here's what I want you to see about that. Is that everything about this story is about escape, but it's also about what God is doing in blessing Israel. That, that in terms of, of our of what's going on and, and God's work is it's not all dark, it's not all bad, it's not all that uh, it's not that everything is is completely overwhelming them. And, and I, I think verse seven is a, a very important verse to understanding really the book of Exodus. In some ways, the answer to our question about how we think about even our own questions. Look there again. The people of Israel were fruitful, increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Uh, what, the, what the author has done is he has loaded that verse, and, and if you're familiar with the Bible, you probably see it. He's loaded that verse with the imagery of Genesis, of Genesis 1. What he's saying is that Israel is fulfilling the mandate that God gave to Adam and Eve in the garden. Before the fall, before brokenness, before sin entered the world, the very thing that God had told Adam and Eve they were to do to be fruitful and multiply, the, the writer of Exodus is saying, look, this is what's happening. And what we want to see is that God is at work in the midst of, of this, uh, this people, in the midst of this event, and that mandate, that kingdom mandate, if you will, that cultural mandate, I guess, or creation mandate, if, if you would rather, is actually being fulfilled in the midst of uh, Egypt, outside the promised land, in this place where Joseph is forgotten. The other thing we see about Exodus in, in terms of this is that Exodus actually in the Hebrew begins with an and. Uh, it starts with and, and and that might not seem important to you, but um, you know conjunctions are, are are very important. And the writer of Exodus is starting the book of Exodus with and for a, a very specific reason. What he wants us to see in the language that he uses in verse 7 and in the use of, of and to start the book of Exodus is this is not um, just a book. This is a continuation of a story. This is a continuation of what God has already been doing in Genesis. This is an unfolding reality. And what we see is that both blessing and oppression are un unfolding in what God is doing. That both what um, both the very uh, creation mandate, the very thing that was given to Adam and Eve to to do as uh, image bearers of God, is unfolding. But it's unfolding in the midst of oppression. And what's interesting about it, it's the very point at which we see this language of God's blessing that the kingdom of darkness rears its head. That the kingdom of darkness says no. Let me just step back for a second. Because I think oftentimes we look at the mire that we're in or the darkness that's cast around us. And we think if we could just get rid of it, then blessing would come. 
If we could just get rid of whatever it is, if we just, and we do this, we talk like this in the church a lot, we look at the culture around us and say, if we could just get that to stop around us, then, then the blessing of God would come. But actually here in Exodus, it's the point at which the blessing comes that darkness rears its ugly head even more. That darkness sets itself in opposition to what God is doing and what God has called his people to do. We are not, um, I'll, I'll say it maybe more specifically, our hope of blessing and the unfolding of the kingdom mandate, this increasing and multiplying, this growing exceedingly strong, this blessing of God unfolding among us as God's people is not contingent upon whether we have a Joseph in the White House. It's just not. And even when Joseph makes it to the White House, there's no promise in the Bible that things get better around you. And I'm saying White House, you, you say anywhere in sort of cultural power plays, Congress, the Supreme Court, the mayor, wherever we think that if we could just get Joseph there, that actually getting Joseph there may be the thing that causes the kingdom of darkness to rear its ugly head and say, enough of that. There's no promise in the scriptures that once Joseph has ascended, that it will transform Egypt. There's certainly a promises in the scripture, and there's certainly uh, the, everything about the Exodus is wanting us to see that these promises have not been left off. That's why it starts with the and. This is an unfolding. You've got to realize that this is part of what God is doing when he called Abram from Ur. But let me say it, so some of us need to hear that our hope for escape from the miry pit is not based on what happens in our culture around us. It's not. Politically, culturally. That actually sometimes when the, the church is being the church in its most um, kingdom-oriented way, growing and multiplying, Oppression is at its worst, and the darkness is pressing in on us. But the other thing, some of us in here need to hear that um, God really is, in the midst of the darkness, blessing. That, that God really is growing Israel. There's a couple other things in this in this story that that are that are um, just signs of this. That one is just these are the names of the sons of Israel. That phrase "sons of Israel" is um, only used twice in Genesis. It's used 125 in Exodus, and the reason for that is because everything about Genesis is about these particular patriarchs and how they're protected as individuals. Exodus is shifting. The story is expanding, and it's expanding. And this phrase, sons of Israel, is a picture of that growing and, and increasing, this multiplying. It's, it's, a, a, it's a term that's used for the kingdom. It's actually a way of saying that these, this promised blessing to Abram that he would be the father of a great nation is actually being worked out right here in front of our eyes. 
That the sons of Israel is not simply now about a patriarch and his life and his family. It's about this nation that's being built as, as God works among them and fulfills uh, the creation mandate among them. As he pulls them together as a people. And the language is of swarming. It's the, that's the language of uh, the, the creatures teeming on the earth. That they're swarming. That there's this uh, great um, fertility to this people. God is at work in the midst of the darkness. God is at work in the midst of a culture, yes, that often is oppressive to the Christian message. Yes, God is at work, and no matter how powerful the forces are that are arrayed against us, Pharaoh was maybe the most powerful man in the world at the time. Certainly in in this world, in his world, he controlled everything. He was the most powerful person. No matter how powerful uh, uh, the darkness is, there is life and there is growth and the kingdom is moving. And I want you to hear that in terms of us as a people, as the, the church of Jesus Christ. But it's also true in your own life as an individual. That oftentimes I think we as individuals, we look and we see the darkness, we see the rut, we see the pit, we see our sin, and we think that that is the total definition of who we are. You know, photographs are a great thing, right? Photographs are these, uh, it's a snapshot, it's this, it's this picture in time, and, it's, um, and actually a, a, a picture in time can uh, reveal things to you that you might not see otherwise, I saw a photograph the other day um, that made me real of myself that made me realize you guys see more of my scalp than I do. And I was like, oh no, <laughs> that's awful. I'm so sorry for those of you who sit behind me and look at my scalp. It bothered me. It's a snapshot. And dealing with college students, one of the things that I'm regularly saying to college students is look. This is sin. Yes, this is awful. This is oppression. This is darkness. Uh, um, Not only do I say it to to students a lot, I say it to their parents a lot. But this is a snapshot. A snapshot can tell us certain things because it locks into a, it may reveal something specific. But it can't tell us. There's no context to a snapshot. You look at a snapshot and everybody's smiling and 30 seconds before mom was uh, you know, barking at the little kid to get them to stand still so that she could take the snapshot and, and encouraging them with all her might to get the child to smile so that everybody's smiling in the snapshot. But you just see everybody smiling. And oftentimes we compare ourselves and the darkness that we experience with snapshots of other people and we think they seem to be okay. And what this, the way this unfolds and the reason it starts with and and the reason he goes back to Joseph and he talks about the 70 and he brings in the, the kingdom of God is he wants you to see that, yes, this is about to get really dark. But God is on the move. God is at work. The kingdom is advancing. It is. And there is no force of hell that can be arrayed against it that will stop it. It's not possible. And we've got to stop living as if, um, one, 
One, as if if we just get the culture fixed and if we just get Joseph in the right place, in the right position of power, then we'll be okay. Because maybe getting Joseph in that position of power will, will cause the darkness to rear its head even more. Maybe. One thing that we're promised, I've already said we're not promised um, that getting Joseph is going to fix things. There is no... Um, Egypt, even though it was blessed by Joseph's place in in their lives, Egypt on a dime turns evil again. It just does. We are not, as the church of Jesus Christ, being called to um, live on the hope that culture will change for our good. Because even if it does, it can change on a dime. And there were no good old days. I'm sorry, there never were. I'm, I really, I want you to hear me say that. Internet pornography is not better than the slave trade, or worse than the slave trade. It's not. It's not worse than what we did to the natives when we got here. We have got to stop living like there's some cultural thing that we're after. We are after the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God advances against the kingdom of darkness because God has promised to do so. And he's at work. And we are a part of this story and it's unfolding. And what's so profound about this is Exodus wants us to see is is that this is is being worked out in time and space. I'll just step back and apply this. Uh, In order to be faithful to what the Bible thinks about God and therefore what God thinks about God, history matters. It matters that this is advancing in time and space. It matters that the sons of of Jacob have expanded in Egypt. It matters that this is real earthy stuff going on. And we live in a kingdom that is, is, it's not of this world, but it is going to take over it when Jesus comes again. We are not living for some escape, and we're not living for some hope in this life, in this culture around us. Please, if you are struggling individually and you look around and you're afraid because you're in the darkness, you're in the miry pit, and and you've trusted Christ, one of the things I want you to at least see about this is that both that darkness, which is bad, and God's blessing are still present in your life. The darkness does not define you. Actually, God is at work in the darkness of Exodus to bring about something even more profound. God is actually at work in your life and in our life, in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the miry pit, to actually establish what his work in our lives and to cause us to be fruitful and to multiply. To be um, uh, ambassadors. None of us are so stuck that God can't use us or isn't using us. Not that he can't. He is. We see, therefore, that The kingdom of God advances both in the midst of favor, fruitfulness, whatever you want to call it, and enmity, strife, oppression. And yet it is marching. It is moving. 
we must believe that God is at work in order to understand how we are lifted out of the miry pit. Some of us just need to believe that God is at work. He hasn't left off you until you get your act together. And then once you do, he'll come back and pick up where he left off. He's actually at work there. And it's merciful. All right, there's one other thing I'll I'll say about this by way of introduction. How do we get from Israel here and us here? Where where do we go to to see this? And I I, I want you to... um, I've, I've kind of sprinkled this throughout. I haven't done this in sort of let me stop and talk about um, the, you know, the truth that the Bible's a story and that redemption's unfolding. But I want you to turn, if you will, to Acts chapter 6. And let's just look at how this applies to us even today. I'll read, I'll read the first part of it. Now, in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected, daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus, Nicanor. I've never read these names before out loud. Timon and Par- Parmenes, or Par- Parmenus, Nicholas, as a proselyte of Antioch. These they said before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Do you see it? The word of God continued to increase and multiply. It's the same words. The Greek version of Genesis 128, same two verbs. The kingdom of God has not stopped. It hasn't stopped. And what Luke wants you to see, and the reason he picks those words, is because he wants you to see that as we, as you, as this church, as you as an individual, declare the word of God, as you speak life in the gospel, as you talk about what Jesus has accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection, that you are being fruitful and multiplying. The kingdom of God is advancing. That the mandate that was given in the garden is actually unfolding by the means of of the word and the spirit. That the church is actually active taking up what Adam and Eve lost. What you do matters. What you say in speaking of Christ actually moves this whole project forward. Again, there is no promise that it's one that we're just going to gently 
ease into the kingdom of God. There is a day when Jesus will come back and set all things right. But what he's going to do when he sets all things right is going to go. And this is so um, such a part of the fabric of Exodus and really all the Bible is he's going to restore what was broken. Creation will be restored. That what was given to Adam and Eve will be completed in his return. And now we in the church, as we declare the message of the restoration that has come in Jesus Christ, we are increasing and multiplying. We're fulfilling the kingdom mandate. And it's happening. It's happening all around us. And I bet if we could open up uh, the mic today, many, many of us could talk about stories where we see the kingdom of God taking over and shining the light in the dark places and, and casting down powers that we never thought we would see cast down. Exodus, the way out. The way out is to understand that though the, the world sets itself up against the kingdom of God, his kingdom will not fail. Last thing, I'll close with this, this phrase. Now there arose, verse 8, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Once God kind of, I don't know, I, I, he, he doesn't slumber or sleep, um, but I, I kind of picture it like maybe like a father who's watched something and, and he stands up and says, enough, no more. That's enough. Look over in chapter 2. During the many days, verse 23, during the many, those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abram, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Pharaoh didn't know Joseph anymore. Pharaoh had forgotten who Joseph was. But God, because of his covenant and his covenant faithful, God knows it's one of the, you read it and it's kind of one of those phrases of God knew. That, I think if, if that phrase, if, if the power of that phrase were unleashed, the foundations of the earth would shake right now. God knew. The way we understand our way out of the miry pit is to understand that God is at work. That God is at work. That the kingdom is advancing and he's actually using us as his ambassadors, and he's actually restoring us so that we can be fruitful and multiply, that we can be a part of that great work on earth. And whatever darkness surrounds you, that does not thwart God. It does not keep him at bay. He is at work always, always, Always on behalf of his people. Always. In every circumstance. No matter what the circumstance is. He's always at work. He always knows. He's always faithful. Amen.